You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, July 26, 2023. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Brooklyn Lambright reports that an Indiana bill repealing state tax on menstrual products was denied a hearing and how period poverty impacts women nationwide. More in the bottom half of tonight's program. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. More following today's feature, but first, your local headlines. The Bloomington Utility Services Board met on July 17th, 2023. At the start of the meeting, a motion was made to change the agenda and to add an additional petitions and communications item at the beginning of the meeting. The adjustment gave petitioners the opportunity to avoid sitting through the entire meeting in order to present. The petitioners, Eric Kamen and Song Kim, spoke to the board about an increase in water fees that occurred due to a water line break. So Mrs. Kim and her family, they, uh, they operate the Korea restaurant on 4th Street, um, and they are not from the um, United States of America. They don't speak English. This is not their first language. So um, it's, it, it just kind of is what it is. So I guess what happened was we had a water line break in our basement. Our basement was flooded. And their water bill went up astronomically. If you could please turn to the back. Um, the back section... Uh, in February, their bill was $247. In March, $247. Uh, $315 in April of this year. And then we had a waterline break. Uh, in May, went to $645. June, $2,832. And then we fixed the waterline break, and now it went down to from, from over $2,000 or $2,800 down to... $1,415. So clearly their average bill was somewhere around the vicinity of like 247 to $315. That was pretty, pretty typical use of the building. Um, they had this waterline break and the city of Bloomington said they, they put some kind of a notice on their front door. I'm not going to lie to you. I don't think they would have recognized what that was or been able to read it. And, and it, it doesn't seem exactly fair for somebody who works very hard, is not from this country. And, and I think 4th Street got noticed on Forbes for being this diversely, you know, diversity and culturally significant street full of restaurants that have, you know, authentic food. And it, it just doesn't seem right for somebody that doesn't speak English who contributes a lot to the, you know, the local community and, you know, has a great service, you know, is part of our community and, and, you know, there was a waterline break. They didn't know what they were receiving on their door. And, you know, we got denied from from the city of Bloomington Utilities. And I'm just not exactly sure if the goal here was, you know, I don't think their goal here was that they 
they intentionally didn't do anything about it. I think they just clearly didn't know anything about it. Um, so when the city of Bloomington did inform them about this waterline issue, I just don't think they knew exactly what was going on. I, I just don't think there's any chance. So um, if, if you all could please reconsider, uh, you know, lowering their their bill for, or at least giving some kind of a credit, um, it would be very, very much appreciated. And I think going forward, we, we all learned a lesson here. And, you know, they have their daughter that is their translator, and she does not live here, but she takes all the calls and does all of the, you know, English speaking for them. And, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, this is just a one and done thing. And I think we've all learned our lesson and we just hope we can all can reconsider here. Board President Amanda Burnham asked for clarification on how the restaurant owners received the utilities notices that there was a leak. Came and responded. No, I mean, their bill has been unbelievably consistent until, you know, they saw an explosion of their bill and all of a sudden, you know, I got involved and we remediated the problem. And um, I I have no doubt the city of Bloomington gave them notice. I'm I'm not here to dispute that. What I'm disputing is that it just doesn't seem like the the best way for an international tenant to or restaurant to be able to um, be informed. And, And they are unbelievably punished because of it. Director of Utilities Vic Kelson explained the city typically can waive sewer bills. However, they do not normally waive water bills. So typically for we're with uh, sewer bills, we can waive a portion uh, if the water did not go to the sewer, but it was our it was explained to us that it, the water largely went to a floor drain that ultimately goes to sewer. So so we didn't have uh, we didn't have discretion really to make that change. Um, and we never do uh, refunds for water unless the board approves it. So our circumstance was that um, that there wasn't any uh, justification under the normal rules for us to 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 waive anything on this one. Board member Kirk White asked if there was a board precedent for adjustments like this. Kelson responded. We do adjustments all the time for sewer uh, when you have a situation where, for example, you have a water line that's in your yard and it leaks. um, And so it's clearly not going to the sewer. It's just going into the soil. Uh, But for the water portion of the bill, we're really restricted on what we can do under our rules. Like administrative rules. Yeah, uh, it's both the it's the way the practice that we have is that that and Chris can talk about the legal, but it's legal aspects of it. But it's under our rules. The board, the board uh, has has jurisdiction over the water bill. Um, you know, we do these all the time um, and uh, but staff never approves a water refund. Kelson explained that since they do not make any money from delivering water, they have to charge the cost it takes to deliver the water. We don't make money on anything that we do. So the cost of the water is we charge what it costs us to deliver the water. And we, we charge what it costs us to collect and treat the sewer water. So if the board wants to make an adjustment, that's entirely up to the board. But uh, that's really outside staff jurisdiction. Board member Jim Sherman shared what he remembers the board has done in the past for water petitions. My memory is that we've had several of these cases where people have come in, and if it was appropriate, we would 
adjust the sewer side, but not the water side. And we've had cases where people had no way of knowing because they left for Christmas break. Mm -hmm. No one was there. there. Even if there was a notice on the door, they wouldn't have found it. And in those cases, we did not adjust the water portion or the if it was a toilet running the whole thing. So. Assistant City Attorney Chris Wheeler shared the rules and regulations the city has on unusually high or low water bills. Just as a reminder for the board, the way <clears throat> the law works with regards to um, unusually high or unusually low bills, when, we, when you look at our rules and regulations, um, we have modeled the way that we would look at the adjustment of water and wastewater bills based upon how the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission has put together its policies. We're not regulated under this particular section by the IURC under either water or wastewater, but they have put forth actual administrative code policies on how they would like to see utilities handle these sorts of situations. And many years before I ever showed up to be the utilities attorney, the uh, policies and procedures put forth by this board uh, model the IURC. And so when you look at the IURC at uh, 170 IAC 6-1-14, you find adjustment of bills um, and it reads the same as what our policies are, which is basically to look at whether the meter was operating correctly on the water side. If the water meter is not working correctly, then certainly we should do something to correct that bill. But if the water meter properly has um, read the amount of water going through and being used, it's not the utility or this board's job to try and figure out what the water was used for whether they used it to fill up a pool, whether they used it for cooking or cleaning, whether they used it just to pour it down their toilet because of a leaky toilet. We don't ask that question. We just look at whether the water was used. And in those situations where there hasn't been any identification of a error on the meter side that the meter itself is reading incorrectly, we have historically not corrected the water bill. Uh, where you can get some relief then is what we were talking about is on the wastewater side. If you can show that the wastewater, um, it, that the water that was used because of leak um, or toilet running uh, somehow did not enter into the stormwater system to then get treated, we would be in a position to adjust the bill. I don't hear that here. Um, so our policies as a utility department are that the bill does not get adjusted. Wheeler advised the board to adhere to the precedent so previous petitioners will know they have been treated fairly. If this board wishes to make an adjustment, I would caution it to be certain that it's not doing things arbitrarily so that somebody could then complain later that they didn't get their bill adjusted, uh, that we're not doing it somehow capriciously, that we're doing it even-handedly across the board. But my recollection is as Jim has just uh, stated, at least as long as I've been the attorney for this board, is that we haven't made adjustments in these situations. It's a shame, uh, but we do it across the board, and sometimes you get some pretty harsh results. 
the Bloomington Utilities Services Board was unable to provide any aid other than payment adjustments to the restaurant and tenant. There was a motion to continue, which passed unanimously. The next Bloomington Utility Services Board meeting will happen on Monday, July 31st, 2023. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Brooklyn Lambright reports on an Indiana bill repealing state tax on menstrual products that was denied a hearing and how period poverty impacts women nationwide. We turn to Lambright for more. Worldwide, there are nearly 800 million people who menstruate. Every 28 days, they experience a variety of symptoms, such as cramps, nausea, bloating, mood swings, fatigue, acne, and bleeding for nearly seven days straight. 500 million of those people lack the resources they need to manage their menstrual cycle. In the United States, one-third of low-income women miss commitments like school or work because of a lack of access to affordable menstrual care. There's only one federal law that addresses these issues. The First Step Act, codified by Congress in 2018, requires federal women's facilities to supply free menstrual products. As of June 20, 2023, 21 states still charge sales tax on menstrual products. This does not include any provisions on access to period products in schools, private prisons, and homeless shelters. Those without access to quality period products may extend the life of a tampon or pad in order to cut on costs. This increases the chance of toxic shock syndrome, reproductive tract infections, negative pregnancy outcomes, and the human papillomavirus. Beyond the health risks acquired by a lack of access to period care, a lack of menstrual products can lead to greater feelings of humiliation and exclusion, according to the ACLU. Jennifer Gaines, the program director of Alliance for Period Supplies, an organization that works to provide period products to women in need while also advocating for greater period equity, says additional taxes on menstrual supplies can make it difficult for families on a budget to purchase the products they need. And so the first thing by removing and eliminating that tax um, will continue to, um, you know, advance equity and specifically gender equity, right? So there's no reason why period products are taxed and other things are not. So removing that tampon tax will, um, you know, create a message that these products are essential. They're not a luxury. Um, and also removing the undue burden, additional burden of the financial constraints that, you know, people who can't afford them, um, you know, are able to access them a little bit more because that restraint is, is removed. So, we're only paying, you know, a few cents on the dollar, um, but that is uh, can make or break a family decision on whether or not they choose period products or just with their limited funds, or they go to the grocery store and buy food to support their families. Indiana is among one of the 21 states nationally that still tax menstrual products. In the last legislative session, State Senator Shelley Yoder for Indiana's 40th District authored Senate Bill 259, which proposed removing taxes on menstrual products. The bill, however, never made it to a hearing. Items in Indiana are taxed if the state legislature determines they are a luxury. Yoder says placing a tax on menstrual items is spreading the wrong message about their necessity. Menstrual products are not a want, but a need for people who menstruate. 
Now, we made a decision that other items like food, we would not tax because people need food to survive. So we're not going to build an economy on the back of people needing to eat food. But we have decided Indiana is going to build an economy off the backs of women. And what my bill would do would be to say, no more. We're going, Indiana is going to join with the other states who now recognize this as an unconstitutional tax. And we're going to repeal the tax on menstrual products. You can't be in the same spaces as men without menstrual products. And my bill would just say, in Indiana, we recognize that as a constitutional right. And so we are not going to tax menstrual products any longer. The issue with the bill wasn't its lack of support. In fact, SB 259 had bipartisan support. Kyle Walker, the Republican state senator for Indiana's District 31, co-authored the bill. Yoder says the issue with the bill is the loss of tax revenue the state would lose if taxes on period products were eliminated. Yoder estimates the state receives nearly $5 million annually off taxed menstrual products. The bill, I couldn't even get a hearing. And I had so many conversations. I wrote letters, had face-to-face conversations, had bipartisanship with actually filing the bill. I had a co-author. My co-author was Senator Kyle Walker, who agrees with me. And I had, I was just building a coalition of support. In the House, my bill was filed by a Republican man. There was a comparable bill filed by a Republican man in the House. This is not a partisan issue. This is an issue that I did my work and had the coalition built to get this passed, but there wasn't the will to let go of the revenue that's created by it. And to me, it's outrageous. And and to many, that is outrageous that in the same year that we are going to say, In Indiana, we're going to build an economy on the backs of women while we are stripping away their rights. Both of those things happen at the same time with the passage of SB1 and the passage of House Bill 1001, which was our budget, which is where that we should have passed that bill and our budget for the next two years should not be gathering taxes on the backs of women to be able to be in the same spaces as men in the workplace and at school. But tax revenue isn't the only reason the bill was denied a hearing. Yoder says discussing periods in the state house was uncomfortable for some legislators. I would say due to the lack of education and due to what continues today to be a discomfort in talking about menstrual cycles and periods, a reality that every person with a uterus has for about 30 years, 20 to 30 years of their lives impacts women every 28 days. That is certainly on the minds of people who have menstrual cycles, but a real discomfort among those who have the power to do something about it.
We have made a choice in this legislature to not tax certain items. And it felt very much like, and we are intentionally going to tax these products. So it came down to just a lack of will to want to have this conversation in the public. Deep down, there is this taboo about talking about women's bodies unless we are silencing them or banning them. Both SB1, Indiana's abortion ban, and SB259 were proposed in the same legislative session. However, while SB1 made it through the state house, complete with a signature from Governor Eric Holcomb, SB259 still awaits a hearing. Yoder says it's important the legislature considers a tax exemption on menstrual products. The bill proposed would not allow for free products, but it would ensure lawmakers don't profit off those who menstruate. What's important to recognize is at no time is this about giving free products. I mean, women and girls already have to pay for these products. No one's asking for those products to be free. The bill just simply said, let's not tax them. Let's not, what are we, what are we saying? Um, taxing women and girls' ability to engage in society, to go to school and to go to work, we're going to tax them. And from that $5 million in revenue that Indiana, the state of Indiana is going to earn per year, let's build a sports complex. Let's build a new barn at the 4-H fair. I mean, what, what are we saying is, is going to be an outcome that's solely paid by women and girls having a uterus and having a period? What, what are we doing? What's worth it? Yoder is urging people to think about menstrual supplies as medical devices rather than hygiene products. While hygiene products are needed to look and smell good, medical devices are needed to survive. People without access to period supplies risk having to use less safe alternatives to stop blood flow. But I'm, I'm really clear, um, just calling them hygiene products. No, they are defined as medical devices by the FDA. And these are not hygiene products to make you think like it's baby powder and deodorant. Not the same thing. Menstrual products are not the same thing as when you think about hygiene products. Hey, mom, can you pick me up a bar of soap? from the supermarket, not the same thing as I'm out of tampons. Yoder's bill is just the beginning when it comes to tackling the issue of period poverty nationwide. Menstruating people in homeless shelters and prisons across the nation struggle with access to period products. The ACLU reported on a particular case in a Michigan jail which deprived their women detainees of needed menstrual products. The women were forced to beg prison guards for products, with some having to bleed onto their jumpsuits, which were only washed once weekly. One woman reported that prison staff once made 30 women share only 12 pads. For reference, 12 pads would not last a single woman through an entire cycle. When the prison was taken to court, the judge ruled the case, quote, too trivial to be considered a violation of the Constitution, end quote. There are numerous stories around the country of similar cases which deprive female inmates of necessary supplies. Organizations like Alliance for Period Supplies and the ACLU are advocating for better legislation that addresses period poverty. We advocate on state and federal level um, for legislative changes to raise supplies that are unaffordable. Um, so that meaning advocating uh, to advance, particularly related to period products in schools. 
um, as well as eliminating the sales tax on menstrual products. Um, and so we have a department here um, dedicated to government affairs that make relationships with elected officials across the country um, in collaboration, coalitions and nonprofit leaders um, to help educate these officials on the issue of period poverty um, and ways they can help to impact and get those products to the folks that, they, that need them the most. Activists and lawmakers advocating for period equity agree education among politicians is necessary. The topic of periods has long been viewed as, quote, taboo, and now that prejudice is slipping into state houses across the nation. To learn more about the advocacy work of the Alliance for Period Supplies, visit allianceforperiodsupplies.org. To contact your local representative about period equity, visit iga.in.gov. For WFHB, I'm Brooklyn Lambright. Up next, we have Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. Host and producer Richard Fish has more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Okay, get ready to take notes or record this if you can, because there's a lot of good information about to come your way. The Better Business Bureau has sent a list of the most important things you need to do to stay safe online. Cyber attacks from pirates, scammers, and other countries are happening all the time now. Massive data breaches in the past few years guarantee that at least some of your personal information is for sale on the dark web. It's getting more dangerous out there, so listen up. Share with care. Posts on social media last a long time. Consider who will see the post, how it might be perceived, and what information it might reveal about you. Manage your privacy settings. Check the privacy and security settings on all your web services and apps and set them to your comfort level. Yes, you have to do this for each browser, email program, application on your computer or on your phone and every Internet-connected device. Personal info is like money. Value it. Protect it. Things like your purchase history, IP address, or location have great value to businesses just like money. Find out what information a business collects before using their website. Make your passwords long and strong. Use a combination of upper and lower case letters, numbers, and symbols. Don't use a password more than once. Have a different one for every login. Don't store them on your computer. Write them down on paper, or use a password program like Bitwarden or 1Password. Keep tabs on apps. Many apps ask for access to things like your geographic location, contacts list, even your photo album. Beware of any app that wants information that isn't needed for the services they offer. If you don't use an app, delete it. If you do, make sure that it's kept updated. Lock down your login. 
Even a unique username and a strong password may not be good enough. Use two-factor authentication, where the site emails you a code to enter before it lets you in for your most important key accounts like email, banking, social media, and connecting your mobile devices. Don't click on unfamiliar links. When you see a link in an email or on a website, never click unless you are certain of who is providing the link. Even then, hold your cursor over the link and look to see if it goes somewhere else. Pay attention to Internet-connected devices. Smart thermostats, voice control systems, cars, and even refrigerators are just the beginning of the growing list of devices that watch our homes and track our location. Before you buy one or turn it on, make sure you know what information it collects and how it's used. That's just a quick list. Go to bbb.org, look for cybersecurity, and get more info. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at wfhb.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at wfhb.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. Support for the WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com.